0: Hi, everyone. This is Jenna Spinelli, and I am very excited to introduce this conversation with Sarah Koenig about criminal justice. Sarah and her team from the Serial podcast spent a year inside Cleveland's criminal justice system for season three of the show. She visited Penn State and talked with Democracy Works host Michael Berkman about judges, prosecutors, prison sentences, and much more. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did.
1: Sarah, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works.
0: I am
2: delighted.
1: And uh, congratulations on such a successful season of Serial. It was a fascinating look at a critical part of our democracy how we administer justice. Uh, So, we have over 35,000 downloads of Democracy Works, and we thought we were doing pretty well.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's adorable.
1: So, you have somewhere north of 50 million listeners of season three alone. That is just amazing. Uh, and you have real. Fun.
2: Well, no? I mean, just for. I don't know what the downloads are. Those aren't listeners. Okay. 50 million, it's downloads. downloads. Sorry, I just don't want to put out anything. Well, we like fake. to count the downloads. Yeah, you know, we count the <laughs> downloads, but those are not individual listeners, if ah, you see what I, I got I mean. you. Yeah. Well, yeah. in any case, what is it
1: about this season you think that has so captured people's attention?
2: I don't know. I mean, I, I I was worried no one was gonna listen. I mean, not no one, you know what I mean? Like, I know we have an, Serial has an audience that mm-hmm. a, a certain group is gonna come along, I think, no matter what, I hope. But I did worry, um, because its such it was such a different kind of project, and it was such a different it wasn't one story and it right. wasn't one particular sort of hunt for a thing that uh, people would not be into and it's hard it's difficult difficult material it's depressing some of it it's so um, and it, it's hard to know what to do with it once you know it. Mm-hmm. it it sits on you and you're kind of like, well, so now what so it's hard it wasn't an easy thing so i was really thrilled people so many people listened i think we we actually broke a record for us mm-hmm. in our first two episodes like the number of downloads we had so i was i was shocked actually i don't know i mean i think it's cuz we're geniuses and we're really good at telling stories so that. there's that yeah. um no i th- you know i think um we tried to do what we know how to do, right, which mm-hmm. is to make it narrative, as narrative as, as we could, and to introduce difficult concepts kind of slowly and not overload you with information. And um, and I also think it's a topic, it's very, look at, we're yep. all here, right? Yep. So it, people are, it, It's it's become a topic that people are talking about and caring about in the last however many years, yep. and that's... Personally, a thrill to me, yeah. but I think that helped. Like the mm-hmm. timing of it helped.
1: Well, I, so the first season told the story of one case, right? Of uh, a non-Saeed, mm-hmm. and uh, so his case, of course, is very rare for a criminal case. Right. It went to trial. Uh, he had a well-paid attorney. He himself didn't have a criminal record. The trial lasted for weeks and on and on. So. So I have a two-part question. You could take both parts, one part, however you want to do it. But what did you learn from that case and season that informed this third season, or and what were you hoping to do with this third season that you could not do with the first season or the second season, which right. was also one case?
2: So the thing that I think we we all found interesting about about the Anan Sayed case was that I it. After I did a ton of reporting on it, I was like, something's not right here. Something is wrong with this case. And I don't think the crime happened the way that the state said that it did. Mm -hmm. And that story is what got a 17-year-old kid convicted and sent to prison for the rest of his life. So it felt like something's off here. And yet when we looked at it, and we looked at sort of how the... um, investigation went, how the prosecution went, how the defense went, the judge's role, the jury's role. There wasn't a bad guy, you know, there wasn't, like, some coked up, you know, defense attorney who, like, you know, conked out at the table, or, you know, there was no, like, evidence that somebody had been paid off, or, you know, there was no, like, obvious, like, aha, I see the problem, I see the broken link, I see why this thing isn't quite right. It felt like everybody is kind of doing their job at a perfectly okay level mm-hmm. um, f- for how our system works actually, and um, and yet this is the outcome, this very imperfect thing. And so um, that was a thing that stayed with us of like, wait, is this just like how our system (laughs) (laughs)
1: goes? But that led you to want to look at the system as a whole. Yeah, Yeah. so it it Mm -hmm.
2: felt like, and also it did feel like people, a lot of people afterward were like, well, what does this mean about the whole system? Like, can you extrapolate? And it felt like, well, that, no, you can't extrapolate off of one case that, as you point out, is pretty extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So it, it really did feel like, well, let's just go look and see the ordinary stuff? Just like how is, what is the baseline functionality of our system in a very kind of day-to-day, um, mundane way, honestly? Like it, treat it as an office. Like mm-hmm. just treat the courthouse like an office and yeah. see how it works.
1: Uh, so you, uh, you chose Cleveland, and in, in some sense, Cleveland chose you because they allowed you to record. Yes, and helped a lot. <laughs> of helped other a lot. Cities, it, you couldn't yeah. do that in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And you had this remarkable interview with a guy by the name of Steve Loomis, who mm-hmm. right? was the head of the police union. Uh, and it was one of those interviews where it had me thinking, does he know he's actually being taped? And I, and, oh, yeah. Right? And I guess you, you cut out some of the most racist stuff. From what I've read, there were parts of what he said that you didn't even put into the... Am I, am I incorrect on that?
2: You're not incorrect on that.
1: Uh, so, I guess, uh, so maybe fill us in on, on Officer Loomis for people that don't really know what, exactly what it is that I'm talking about. And I'm just I'm curious just what you made of all this. I mean, he was elected, wasn't he, by the other police officers?
2: Yeah, I mean, and, he, and then he got unelected. Like, when we talked to him, he was on his way Did he then get unelected?
1: Oh, not no, because like, of us. Okay. He was
2: already unelected, yeah. No, I mean, he was like in his last few months in, in office at that point. Um, you know, he's not, he's a little more um, bombastic and, me I think, than, than other police union presidents. So he was
1: trying to demonstrate just how racist he could be? <laughs>
2: to, um, to impress you? No, I mean, <laughs> uh, Steve doesn't think he's racist, okay? He does not think he's racist. So it's, he wasn't trying to be, he's, he's just being himself, and that's, you know, he doesn't hide who he is, which I totally appreciate as a reporter, honestly. Um, but he... Um, you know his stance, uh, setting the racism aside, which is obviously very disturbing. The other thing that's very disturbing is this kind of lip service to "we are open to reform." Yes, we can always get better, and then a total and complete opposition to any practical reform, yeah. or to any admission that his officers or that that, that, that officers actually do anything wrong, yeah. um, and, and that there's anything systemically wrong. So it, it was just a very typical, I mean, if you read about, for example, what's happening in Baltimore, what's happened in some other, unless you, you know, Cleveland's under a consent decree, so is Baltimore, so are a lot of places. Um, and and it seems like the places where there has been any successful, true successful outcome from those consent decrees, I think Seattle has actually had a pretty good result. If I'm not mistaken, it's where they get buy-in from the police union, and it's it's hard. It's in a place like Cleveland, it's very hard. It's it's very old school. It's very like don't tell me how to do my job. I put my life on the line every day, mm-hmm. etc. So he's a. Yeah, he, he's a, a very colorful character, yep. but he's not atypical of kind of the, the stance he's taken within the department.
1: Well, let me, one more question about policing. So we hear a lot about the idea of community policing, where uh, police try to create relationships and partnerships with residents of the community. And uh, tell me if I, if I have this wrong, but Cleveland used community policing, but then it got cut because of budget issues in yeah. 2000 yeah. or something like that. Uh, so, do you, think, do you think community policing would be, would help some of what you saw in Cleveland? And, and, and especially, I'm thinking about East Cleveland, because really, your, your podcast is really about these two cities. Right? You have a couple of episodes in East Cleveland, which struck me as a city that is just almost un, ungoverned, <laughs> or so poor it's, that it just seems like it's there's... It's
2: very there's, neglected, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, So I guess I'm curious what you think community
1: policing brings that that might be helpful.
2: I don't know. I don't know enough about Mm -hmm. um, it, I guess, to say for sure. I I know that there are people who study this stuff who say that is the solution. Um, Police want it. They, most police I've spoken to, they want to be doing that kind of policing. They see the value of it, and they think it's valuable. And they don't want to be the people who, in a place like Cleveland, all you do is get in your car and just race from call to call to call to call. And half the time, you're at a call trying to deal with something, and then you get a call for a more major thing, and so you're ripped away. So then that person that you were trying to help is like, there goes yeah. my guy, you know. So it, it's bad for everyone, that kind of police. You know, they, they want it, and they want, I think, to be able to have real interaction with, with people and communities. But whether or not, like... I mean, I think it depends how something like that is run mm-hmm. and how real the commitment is. And
1: Well, one thing that really struck me okay. in, in several of these stories is just the lack of trust between residents the yeah. community and the police. So there was even one case, if I had this right, where the father of a murdered child who knew who murdered his child, would not tell the police who did it?
2: Uh, that's they, not quite right. Is that not quite so right? So he yeah. would say it all story. day long. There were other cases what in there, he too. Thought, What he thought, he thought. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, well, I don't know for sure. Um, but he said, like, look, the street knows. There's all these people mm-hmm. who know. Okay. I have seen, mm-hmm. I see this guy all the time. Like, it's clear to me that he, he, he was the shooter. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, there's no, you know, he knew that his neighbors were not going to go to the cops. And he found it very frustrating, obviously, and very upsetting. But he also completely understood it, that it's not a safe thing to do. It's not... um, No, ultimately, the the good that will come will probably not outweigh the bad. And the government is not... for us it yep. is not here to serve us or protect us and that attitude when i first went to cleveland i couldn't really understand it i think as a like white person of mm-hmm. privilege who lives in like you know a place where there's not a lot of crime i was sort of like really? You would never talk? Like, why not? Like, why wouldn't you? You know, and then by the end of the reporting, I have to say, I was really like, oh, yeah, don't call the cops. Well, the story, the,
1: the, the story in the last two episodes, right, about the, uh, I don't remember his name. Joshua. Joshua, yeah. who was in the juvenile system yes. uh, and had helped the police. Yes. Uh, and it was awful for him. He
2: was sort of tortured for yeah. two and a half
1: years. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He, it was just remarkable to me. By the end, he was better off in the adult correction system right. just because of how unsafe it had become for him in the juvenile system.
2: That's right, yeah. that's right, yeah. So, so yeah, and, and I know you and I had talked a little bit about this before the other day when we talked, but like that issue of cooperating with law enforcement, you know, a.k.a. snitching, um, was in some way like the arc of the whole series for us, of just kind of the way that cooperation or lack of cooperation, we were hearing pieces of it in, in, in each story, and we're trying to sort of build a, a bridge that you understand by the time you get to Joshua, uh-huh. like, oh, this is going to be a really bad decision yeah. for you to cooperate. And yeah. indeed, it, it turns out to be one.
1: It, it was a powerful way to end. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about judges a little bit. You give uh, rich profiles of some different judges, some of whom Exhibit behavior that many people probably thought occurred on TV shows, but not really, (laughs) right lecturing defendants about whether or not they should have children and uh, berating them and in some cases perceptively recognizing when they were being played or or lied to. Uh,
2: Judge Gall. Gall, Yeah, Judge Gall. Um, He's uh, he's really typical of that courthouse in Cleveland. He's um, an Irish guy. Right, Irish. His dad. His dad had been in county politics. Um, he was in his. He was getting near retirement age. So he was like mid sixties. He'd been on the bench a long time, and in in Cleveland, in Ohio, you know, county judges have an extraordinary amount of of uh, discretion and latitude. And they really do, I mean, it's sort of like a cliche of the courthouse, but like they really do treat it as their own little kingdom. Mm -hmm. And so he had his style and his (laughs) way of sort of berating uh, almost every defendant who came before him. Um, and, and, And he saw it as like tough love. Of like I'm gonna sort of take you by the collar, young person, and and try to like shake you around a little bit and talk mm-hmm. some sense into you so you get on the right track. Um, the way it came out was um, so shocking that I like didn't I didn't know where to like I I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe it I was like this is a radio gold but also <laughs> just like. I didn't know this was possible, and why is nobody saying anything? Like, am I the only one that's here? You know, and, and and the fact is, like, again, it's an office, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, one of my bosses is a real dick, you know, and so, it, and it's just like everybody knew that was his, that was his rep. You you stealed yourself before you went in the room. You knew what triggered him. What to, you know, he's like, he's yeah, you
1: said, the the defense defense attorney is really. Uh, prepared their clients on Yeah, they
2: prepared them. Yeah, take it or sometimes like in one of the the early scene I think in, in that episode he's literally holding his client. He has like a hand on his neck, like the back of his neck and another one on his thigh, like just <laughs> kind of like st- and it was weird. And We were like, why is he touching him like that? And then it was later like you realize like, oh, he's just like don't move it's going to be over soon. Just don't say anything. And so, um, and yeah, and so, and so, and another typical thing of Judge Gall was um, he's Democrat, even though in his heart he is a raging conservative Republican, I do believe. (laughs) But he, um, but you know, yeah, that's how you get elected in Cuyahoga County. And so, you know, there's a lot of this, nobody pays attention to judicial races. So you see the Democratic name, it's an Irish name, and you're like, it's vaguely familiar because there's like 10,000 people like named Gall in the county and you're like, yeah, yeah, that guy, I'm sure he's fine. And so that's how these people get sort of, they stay on the bench forever.
1: So a lot of what he did, uh, yeah, he berated people, but he, he was really trafficking in racial stereotypes. Yeah. Right? A lot of what he was saying. Yeah. And so I'm curious whether you saw this in his decisions, too. He, you know, so we had this conference this afternoon that Jenner was talking about, and uh, it's really you know, remarkable how much race just sort of drives through the criminal justice system on, in, on so many areas, and from policing to sentencing to just all kinds of things. And... I'm wondering with this judge in particular. So he's using these racial stereotypes. They make—I got the feeling—they made you uncomfortable. Uh, the defendants just have to sit there and take it. But then, does he treat everybody equally in his, when it comes to actually making decisions? Did you detect? I mean, I—I
2: I, I think I don't want to be too strident about like, oh, he was nicer to white people. I—I I don't. I don't think we did a, a sort of like scientific enough survey to know mm-hmm. that. What I will say is, look, 75% of the defendants in that courthouse are black. So he's dealing with black people a lot more uh-huh. than he's dealing with yeah. white people. That said, um, his kind of, um, am I allowed to swear? I realize that this is going on. I probably shouldn't say swear words. You are, words. Allowed.
1: Jenna nodded her head yes. Oh, uh, she uh, did?
2: Yeah. Okay, sorry. I mean, not that I have to, it's just I, I'm,
1: <laughs> Go ahead.
2: Anyway, I just, th- you know, he has the, re- he, he sort of typifies the like the piece of shit um, ethos mm-hmm. of if you've come before me and you have a record, it, you're a piece of shit. And I don't, I'm not sending you away for 14 years or 16 years or 12 years on a, you know, like a bullshit mugging doesn't, is not gonna hurt me. And like that, I think, he would never say that that is connected with any kind of racism. Right. If I were a neurologist and I could like get inside his brain and detect like where is your, like the part that's lighting up, I would be like, mm. Yeah. I, <laughs> but but I don't a, know, you know, I don't know, yeah. I'm guessing. But well, you
1: had a great phrase in there where you said, it never hurts to be white, it never helps to be black.
2: Yeah, it, yeah, it, I, it, I mean, I didn't make that up, but that's a, a no. defense attorney who oh, worked oh, there for a very long time. Yeah when I asked him about it, I mean, he was like, that is really the shameful truth of this building.
1: Yeah, so this judge in particular also made extensive use of probation. I mean, one reason reason these defense attorneys were telling their clients to shut up is that they probably were gonna end up with probation, or there was a good chance that they could end up with probation. I don't wanna overstate it, but there was a good chance. Uh, So he often put defendants under supervision for years in Mm -hmm. lieu of jail time, Uh, but you also point out that you know, that probation is no picnic.
2: Yeah. Uh, It's also a trap. Right, and that it's a trap.
1: Yeah, and I I wanted to talk about that a little bit in some different ways. You know, so why is it that you thought that some defendants might have actually preferred jail time to probation or...
2: You know, or they yeah. might have
1: been better off anyway. And yeah. They probably weren't thinking. I mean, I don't, don't want to. Jail.
2: Yeah, but, I only yeah. heard that a couple of times. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like I wouldn't say that's the overall like mm-hmm. just <laughs> anything but probation, um, because again, like nobody wants to well, get locked well, let up. Let me throw but, something
1: else in before the answer. Actually, right. it had me also thinking of this idea that that you know, innocence is a misdemeanor. Mm-hmm. That people are constantly being pled out to these misdemeanors, like the uh, young woman in the bar in the very first yeah. episode. Who seemed I don't know completely innocent to me anyway and ends up with this misdemeanor, and as you point out, you know this just begins a sort of spiral for her of all kinds of stuff going right. wrong, and I don't think that's unusual when people are are in the system like that
2: yeah, I mean it's it's and I think you're seeing you know as we're getting in some more progressive um, prosecutors around the country, you're seeing like that's one of the key things that they are looking at is like can we please try to i mean They're not supposed to be sentencing people, but for all intents and purposes, prosecutors have a huge, huge influence on the sentences people get. And also they can sort of reverse engineer it by determining which charges, right? So one of the things you'll see is them saying, you know, let's look at probation and try to, like, narrow it down. Because probation violations are just... I mean, you're half the docket, you feel like, when you're in there, when I was watching, would be a probation violation. And they weren't, I mean, some of them, I guess, are real. Like, yeah, if you go, like, carjack someone while you're on probation, agreed, that's probably violating your probation. I don't think that's okay. But like, you know, staying out after curfew, or I, you know, was had to go out of state because of somebody's funeral or I yes I smoked some weed three weeks ago sue me you know and then they're having to come back through the thing and if you piss off the judge then like he can put you back in and especially someone like Judge Gall who has a temper um you can end up incarcerated and so you know part of the hugely frustrating thing we saw in Ohio but I think this is again true in a lots of parts of the country. There's no data. We don't keep data on this stuff. Nobody is tracking outcomes, say, for when is probation in our jurisdiction, like, when is it proving effective? When are people starting to slide off, you know, and and violate more and more? What is a rational amount of probation for a person? Like, what is actually useful? And so, like, Yeah, you would just see these kind of like three years probation, five years probation, and that's basically like you're why don't you just handcuff me to to your bench now for the next five years? Like, that's kind of how it works.
1: Yeah, and then so that constant requirement to have to be there, or be at the court, that leads to other problems. And uh, you had that uh, neat section, I thought, on losing your driver's license. A yeah, people, uh, yes. So once you lose your driver's license, and you've lost your child care, or perhaps you've lost your job, and it's just a, just a spiral that... Uh, so, talking about these more progressive uh, district attorneys had me thinking about Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Yeah. Uh, who has argued that uh, I believe that probation after one year is really not actually have, being that effective. So is yeah, effective yes. for a year. He's
2: saying 12 months is kind of yeah. like the max we should be So is about. he an example of uh, because he
1: he he's from how I understand what he's up to he wants to move away from the focus on mass incarceration to uh, mass supervision. Yeah, we've got all these people that are constantly under under supervision. So is that the sort of progressive kind of DA that He's
2: you... amazing. I don't know if you guys have like followed what what he's doing. He is he's really extraordinary. I read he 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 wrote a memo soon after he came he was elected. I think it was like a couple months in and it got leaked maybe about a year ago and I read it and I was like I started reading it and then like my jaw was just like dropping open I could not believe I couldn't believe it and and the stuff that he's doing it's all super I mean that's the other thing that's so upsetting it's like the thing that is that is seen as radical that what he's doing to me just seems like Right, right. Why isn't every why isn't this the norm? You know, but it's so not the norm. So the things that he's doing are like, yes, there's the probation thing. He's told his prosecutors, I don't any amount of mar- marijuana we are not charging it. Literally any amount of marijuana we are not charging it. Um, certain thefts, he's gonna, he's under 500 bucks. I think it's like a ticket rather than a misdemeanor. Um, for prostitution charges, we're not gonna charge them. And then, and then it's like, if, there, if, if you have a few of them, we're gonna divert, you know, just divert. There's also just like, divert, divert, divert to any kind of pretrial services we can do or alternate courts or whatever. Um, we're get, when, we, when we offer pleas, we're gonna offer the lowest, mm-hmm. the, the minimum in the range or whatever. Like, that never happens, It's not a thing. Yeah, because you
1: well, talked about this a little bit in Cleveland, people can like, never get out from under these fees.
2: Oh, the fees. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The fees are crazy. But so, so, um, but I'm saying, you know, when they're offering plea agreements, they're saying um, they they should be the minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, often there's a range, right? So it'll be like I don't know, for some low-level felony, it'll be like you know. 18 months to five years, that's the range, or three years. He's saying you can offer below the minimum or the minimum. And if you want to go above that, you need you need a supervisor's okay from the office. That is, I'm telling you, that is like insanely radical. No prosecutor's offices function that way. Yeah. So, it's gonna, so you so, didn't see
1: anybody like this in, among the prosecutors. No, were, no.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, that's what, there's some, they do want to divert, like, look, the, the, the prosecutors don't want to deal with the pissant case. It's not interesting for them. And like they're not all monsters or something. Like they're normal people who are like, yeah, this person's just like addicted to drugs, or like it's family, whatever. Like they're recognizing the societal issues and the and the personal issues that are going on. They don't but they're locked into certain things. Or so for example, there's a dr- a drug court yeah, I was in, about that. In, mm-hmm. in in Cuyahoga County. There are actually two of them. And um and you know, if you talk to the, judge who, the judges who run that, they're very compassionate. They're, they take extra training to learn about addiction and best practices. They, it's a super supportive, very kind of social worky atmosphere. They're, they have, make personal co- relationships with the defendants and all these things. And, and they don't even call them defendants. I think they call them like participants. I don't know. There's like another word for it. So it's very um, non-punitive mm-hmm. as a, well, sort of. I mean, if you don't show up, that violates your deal and then you can go to jail. So it's not like, they're not easy to get through, but it is a truly supportive environment. And they do, like the judge I talked to, especially this one judge, she really cares. Like she cares about these people and she gets to know them. You go in that court, almost everyone participating is white. So then why is that? So what are we doing, right? So. Well, the, the rules for the drug court are if you have this on your record or that on your record or that on your record, you're not eligible. So like that's one thing they were trying to start addressing when we were there of just mm-hmm. like they were kind of recognizing like, oh, all of our graduates of drug court. It's like a 90% black, I mean, white graduation rate in a courthouse that's like 75%. Like, well, this is upside down world, right? So there's a lot of structural things I'm saying that, that prosecutors can't control. So yes, I think like progressive prosecutors and the focus that we have lately on progressive prosecutors and the big money that's going into these prosecutors races across the country like George Soros money is going into it now. It's fantastic, but it is one granted very powerful piece, but it is one piece. Mm -hmm. And the system is enormous and it has many different machines working at once. They do not often interact with each other well or at all, and so I, I get a little nervous when we start saying, oh, we've, we've figured out how to fix it, just elect a bunch of progressive prosecutors. Well, to me, my fear is, yes, you can elect progressive prosecutors, also can replace those, you can yeah. unelect those same prosecutors, so I would rather see a more systemic... Um, change, yeah, I think.
1: Krasner was a defense attorney for, like, 30 he, years yes. before he became a prosecutor. Yeah. So, is that unusual? Yes. It is.
2: Well, so. for to take over a prosecutor's office? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Very unusual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, I, I, I don't know if you how closely you followed it, but he, um, like, I don't know what percentage of his of the office just out the door as soon as he came in. Oh really? So people he either fired them outright, he was like, Bye bye, you're out. Because it's very entrenched, you know, just the culture of these places and and the hierarchies are very, very entrenched. And 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 so he, you know, that was his thing of like you're either you're, you're either on board with all these changes or like you're, you're gone. And a lot of people left, a lot, a lot of people left. So, and, mm-hmm. a, and a lot of it I think was just um, you know, a, a kind of cultural war a little bit between the sort of prosecutor defense attorney worlds yeah. where like mm-hmm. I can't, I'm not gonna be told what to do by you know, a, a, a guy who's like sued the cops.
1: Yeah, so we're going to finish up so that we can have questions from the audience, but I, I do want to ask you one last thing. So there are a lot of students here today, uh, many of whom are probably very troubled by some of what they've learned from you about the criminal justice system or, or in general. Sorry. So, <laughs> so from, from what you saw, what parts of the system are most in need of new smart dedicated people?
2: Um, prosecutor's offices. Prosecutor's offices. I know, like, I read some story, uh, I think it was in the New Yorker or something, of Larry Krasner, it was just like a scene of him going to some law school somewhere and just trying to recruit, like, lefty kids. <laughs> I thought it was, it was very nice. Um, to be prosecutors, you know, which is like the last thing these kids thought they wanted to do. And he was trying to say, like, be part of the revolution. And, and that's great. And so I think, yeah, the prosecutor's offices need it. Um, uh, prisons. I mean, nobody wants to go work in prison. But I have to say, like, uh, the thing that still hurts my heart from Cleveland is the Ohio Department of Youth Services, the, which is which was what runs the juvenile facilities in in Cleveland. Um, yeah. It was really, really, really upsetting. The kind mm-hmm. of dead to the world, like, I don't hear you, you know, our we did a lot of reporting toward the end of the season about what was happening in in Cleveland's juvenile prison, in Ohio's juvenile prisons. And I just was watching a thing online of, um, in the Ohio legislature, there was a hearing to, uh, with the new director of of ODYS, which is, is the government agency that oversees it. And a legislator said, hey, what about what Serial Podcast was saying about all the crazy Crap that's going on, and the and the corruption and the danger, and these children are like you know, comp- in a cr- crazy house, mm-hmm. and he completely blew it off, just completely blew it off, like nothing to see. It was just entertainment. We're on it. We know what's going on. They didn't use the statistics we gave them, you know. And it's that kind of thing where like. If you're not even going to admit there's a problem, anyway, I'm getting off track. Mm-hmm. But I would say like those kinds of agencies that seem to, that I know are so unsexy. And so um, it just feels like, why would I want to go be a government bureaucrat and like a thankless job? Well, I'm in political science, so we so, people want to
1: go become you.
2: But I feel like if you're <laughs> asking where you can make a difference, yeah. boy, wouldn't it be fantastic to have um, the smartest, you know, Most compassionate, most energetic brains be working on juvenile crime.
0: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.